Uh, Father, we come uh, empty and we need you to fill us. Uh, Lord, so as the psalmist says, we open wide our mouths and we ask you to fill it. Uh, Lord, we know that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so, uh, Lord, would you meet our deep need. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be filled. Fill us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, I need to see a, a raise of hands. Uh, how many of you have been on a bourbon tour? A little bashful there. Uh, many of us have been on a bourbon tour. Uh, they're, they're real different, aren't they? I mean, you go to some that are downtown Louisville, downtown Lexington. Uh, you go to others that are literally out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but all these distilleries, they're, they're, yes, they're different, but they're really kind of, and they've got their own stories. They are unique, but you're going to see a really similar process in every single one of them. You're going to observe the what, you're going to observe the how, you're going to observe the when, and you're going to observe the where of the bourbon. And at the very end of the tour, you get the why of bourbon, if you know what I mean. And, um, and one of the things that you'll walk away with, at least is what I, I walk away with every time, is what makes bourbon different from the other kinds of whiskey. Uh, and for bourbon to be bourbon, it's all about the mash. The mash is the mixture of grains uh, it's the, the, that, that are put together, that are distilled, and for it to be bourbon, it has to be 51% corn. corn. There you go. I mean, I knew I was pastor in Kentucky. 51% um, has got to be corn. Uh, it's usually filled out with malted barley and then either wheat or rye. And all the other kinds of whiskey, they really are just the same four products. You've got the malted, you've got the malted barley, you've got the rye, you've got the wheat, you've got the corn, just in different percentages. But if someone handed you a cup of water, some corn kernels, a few rye grains, some malted barley, and some wheat, and then they said, Here, there you go, friend, uh, you've got everything you need for bourbon, you'd likely look back at your friend and go, huh? This sounds like a cardboard diet scam to me. Because really, you, you take these things, uh, and they're, they're these crunchy, pretty much flavorless items, and say that it turns into bourbon, it does sound crazy. And if you know nothing about bourbon, you taste it, you think, oh, there's some sugar cane in there, there's some honey, maybe some maple syrup, and that's what makes it so sweet, but you would be wrong. And I think many of us, when we think about how we change, what are the ingredients that are put in us to make us different? How does personal transformation come about? It's a big question. And I think we'll be surprised to see what it's all about. It really depends on your religion, really. If you're an atheist, you think that the way you change is really about your externals. It's really about the culture, the environment with which you live is what makes you different. In Eastern religions, what makes you different, what you need for a personal transformation is that you need to disconnect from the evils of the physical realm and connect with the spiritual realm. For Jewish folks, the main ingredient to being different is by being born into a Jewish family. For Muslims, it's this combination of self-discipline and allegiance to Allah that will make you different. And then you get into the Christian church. When you get into the Christian religion, then it all depends on your heritage. For some in the Christian tradition, if, especially if you're a Pentecostal or from that stream of the church, it's all about having this overwhelmingly emotional experience. That's what makes you different. That's what's going to change you. 
If you come from a Baptistic background, what it's going to take is a lot of willpower, a lot of effort. And then if you're a Presbyterian, many in our tradition, it's going to take you using your brain and learning a lot. If you use your brain, you learn a lot, you'll be different. And all of these, they, they get something right, but they're all incomplete. It's going to take a combination of ingredients, and I think they are as surprising as they are for bourbon. Uh, so let's read our passage, Ezra. The first five verses of chapter 5, and then verses 13 through 18 of chapter 6. <clears throat> now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river of Shelthar Bazanai, and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. And they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. Chapter 6, verse 13. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bazanai, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the de dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. The word of the Lord. So today is our uh, third message from Ezra. The first week that we uh, started Ezra, we looked at the first three chapters. And what we saw was that God had released his people from Persia to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And when they get there, the people of God build the altar, and everything is looking like it's on the up and up. But then we saw last week, all throughout chapter 4, the people of God face opposition to finish and rebuild this temple. And they're successful. They get God's people to cease their labor, and the work stops. The project comes to a screeching halt almost as, as soon as it started in the year 539 B.C., but then something happens. Something happens here in chapter 5, verse 1. A transformation begins. And now it's the year 520 B.C. It's been almost 20 years since the work had stopped. So put yourself in their shoes. Put yourself in the midst of God's people after these 20 years. 
their charge was to rebuild the temple, remember? It's not to build their own homes, it's not to build their own personal kingdoms, but it's to build God's home and God's kingdom. But now their hearts have grown cold. They're discouraged. The project got off the ground, and over the course of the next 20 years, the job site essentially looks as bad as it did when they were in captivity in Persia. It's almost as if chapters 1, 2, and 3 never really happened. So now what? How is change going to occur for the people of God? Well, I think you'll see four ingredients to this change. The first one is the Word of God. The second one is perseverance. The third one's providence. And the fourth one's joy. The Word of God, perseverance, providence, and joy. I really tried to make them four Ps. I couldn't make it happen. So let's look at the Word of God first. You see it right there in the first two verses of chapter 5. You see in those first two verses two names of builders and two names of prophets. You see the two prophets? They're Haggai and Zechariah. Well, God sends Haggai and Zechariah to his people. He sends them there during this 20-year dormant period to disrupt their complacency. God wants this temple built, so he sends these prophets so that his people might put their hand back on the plow. And we can see these prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, they each have a book in the Bible named after them. And if you were to read them, you'd see Haggai is a really plain, direct speaker. Zechariah is an artist. He uses images to communicate. And so they tag team. They complement one another in their preaching. And it's really effective because it gets two builders involved. And we've already seen these two builders, Jeshua and Zerubbabel. They're the ones who built the altar. And now they finally get off their tails and they get to work. But think about it. Again, put yourselves in the, in the shoes of God's people. Put yourselves in the shoes of Jeshua and Zerubbabel. They're discouraged. Their life rhythms don't include working on the temple. It used to be a big part of their life for a short stint, but not anymore. In some ways, they're ashamed. They know God called them to build the temple, and they never finished it. They feel like failures. When Zechariah and Haggai show up, they probably got a good amount of pessimism when they hear them start preaching. I can just see Zerubbabel and Jeshua thinking to themselves or talking back to the two prophets, saying, dude, I've heard this before. And guess what? The haters are right around the corner, and they're going to let us have it. It's just it's going to be impossible. Maybe you think it's what should be done, but I'm not the one for the job. My track record is terrible. But you've got to remember, these aren't just words from a skilled orator. These are words from God. The same kind of word that came in Genesis 1 that brought things that weren't into existence into existence. The same word of God that called Abraham to leave his home country to go to a land that God would show them. The same word of God that spoke to Moses in Exodus 3 through a burning bush to tell Moses to set his people free. The same word of God that came to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 37 that gave Ezekiel this vision. This vision of a mass of dry bones... And God said, I want you to speak to this mass of dry bones. And when you do, as a result of my word, I'm going to put flesh upon these bones. I'm going to wrap these bones in skin. I'm going to connect these bones with muscles. And then 
The Spirit's going to enter these bodies and they're going to stand on their feet. The power of that kind of word. The same word of God that comes to us in Ephesians chapter 2 and says that when we were dead in our sins, when we were carrying out the desires of our body, God came to us at that point, when we're at our worst, to make us alive together with Christ. See, brother and sister, God's word is active. And yes, we become Christians by his word, but it's also the way in which that we thrive. See, God's word brings us to life and it maintains our life. But how do you get the word? Well, of course you get it here for about 80 minutes. You speak it in the liturgy. You sing it in the songs. You hear it from the pulpit. But what about all the other contexts in which you live the other 166 hours and 40 minutes of our week. We all have pretty similar contexts. We've got our family context or our home life with our roommates. We've got the context where we interact with our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors and our wider community. We've got the context where we interact with each other outside of these 80 minutes. And what are these contexts comprised of? Are they comprised of hearing and speaking the word? If you want more life, get more word. If you want your life to change, have God's word play a central part in all you do. That's the first ingredient. The second one is perseverance. You see it in verses 3 and 5. In verses 3 and 4, the haters come back. Tatani. Isn't that a great name? Tatani comes to the builders of the temple and says, what do you think you're doing here? And they've all, God's people have already been barraged in chapter 4. And so is this episode of their opposition going to lead to the same result? Is it going to lead to a work stoppage? Well, not at all. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop. So something had changed with these people. They were able to keep going in the midst of trial this time. And we also see that God is faithful to his word. In 539, he tells them to start rebuilding the temple. And now it's 520 and they restart it. And then we'll see at the end of chapter 6 that it's completed in 516. So do the math here. You've got some math people among us. 539 minus 516 equals what? 23. It's taken 23 years to get this work done. But it could have only taken four because they restarted in 520 and finished in 516. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound like your life? Sounds like mine. Things take a lot longer than they should. It's my weak faith. It's my stubbornness. It's my desire to hide. It's my propensity towards isolation. It's my defensiveness. It's my rationalization. And it makes change really, really slow. Now, I, I wish my Christian growth was marked by these big leaps of progress. I wish that my problems just fell away. And I think sometimes they do, but I think for the most part, our change is really slow. Maybe you're asking the question, why, why do I keep struggling with the same thing? Why do I have such a short fuse? Why I always have a short fuse? Why I always feel anxious? 
Will I forever be clumsy in relationships? And I get it. And I think what we all need is a realistic view of slow growth and slow transformation as opposed to one that's idealized. Think about it. There's 150 psalms in the Old Testament, these personal prayers. And out of the 150 psalms, three quarters of them are about struggle. So if you've been a lifelong struggle, struggler, and it doesn't seem like your struggle is getting any easier, then guess what? You stand in unison with God's people throughout the ages. Look at the end of, look at there in verse 5. You see the key to their perseverance? It's that little phrase, the eye of their God was on them. So as you struggle, you need to know God's eye is on you. Yeah, they're getting the haters, they're getting tatting eyes all, all up in their business, but God's eye is on them. God's word had set something into motion, and he's not going to withhold his care without his watchful eye making sure that the work's going to get done. Perseverance. So what happens uh, from verse 6 in chapter 5 to the end of, cha- end of chapter 5, you, you would see a letter. Tatnai writes this letter to Darius, who's now the, he's, it's, not, um, it's not Cyrus who's the king of Persia anymore, now it's Darius. And he wants to know, wants to make sure Darius knows that these people are, have gotten to work building the temple. And in chapter 6, verses 1 to 12, you see Darius, he's investigating. He's trying to see, did Cyrus do something here? And what he finds out is Cyrus did, in fact. Cyrus in 539 sends this edict out. Hey, the Jews can go back and they can rebuild the temple. Now Darius gets in line with Cyrus to say that the Jews are allowed to stay there and that they're allowed to rebuild the temple. And furthermore, that he's going to pick up the tab. Now, it's a shock that Cyrus, a pagan ruler would support the Jews in this work. So how could two pagan rulers not just support the work, but pay for it? Only God could do that. It's a really, really strange providence. And I think it's the third ingredient to our transformation. It's God's strange providence. Let's look at the second part of verse 14 in chapter 6. It says, They finished their building by... Let's see. I want you to look. Whose, whose decree allowed them to finish building the temple? Look at it. They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So who was it? Was it the kings or was it God? How do you reconcile those two things? I think you reconcile by saying that the Persian kings were the instruments of God. Because our God is a God who works in the real circumstances of history to order all things for our growth. Three weeks ago, uh, me and the family, we went to North Carolina. One morning, uh, we woke up, and I saw something I'd never seen before in my whole life. A bear. Now, I've seen bears in the zoo, but I've never seen bears in the wild. Well, this bear was in the tree closest to the back porch, climbed up in it. This big black bear in this skinny little tree. I thought the thing was going to snap. 
So I get up, I, I see the bear, the kids are going absolutely nuts. It was amazing. And after that, you know, we watch it, we take our videos, and the bear scurries down and goes back into the woods. And we keep going with our morning. I'm sure we eat something. And eventually, I make my way to the couch. I get to the couch, open up my Bible, and I read Proverbs chapter 17. And I read this, verse 12. Let a man meet a she-bear, that's a female bear, robbed of her cubs... Rather than a fool in his folly. Let me read it again. Let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Now, I did a little research and I found out there's only eight places in the Bible where the word bear is used. Now, the Bible, I don't know if you've noticed, is a really big book. And I didn't read a lot that morning. I only read one chapter. And it's not a story about slim chances. What this story is about is about God getting my attention. I needed, really needed instruction from the Lord on this issue in my life that morning. So I believe that God's in control of bears and that God's in control of pagan kings and that he's in control of the smallest details in our lives in order to leverage them, not first and foremost for your ease and comfort, but for your holiness. And I think what's going to happen as you seek to grow in the Lord is that you're going to take in God's word, you're going to persevere, and then all of a sudden there's going to be a surprise. Something right around the corner where God's going to sneak up on you and he's going to deliver you. The strange providence of God. So those are the first three ingredients. God's word, perseverance, God's strange providence, and the last one, celebration. In verses 16 to 18, what you see in the midst of that is a big festival takes place. And it's a really fitting way to respond to the task that they've completed, isn't it? I mean, back in 586, the temple's been torn down. They live in captivity over in Persia for 50 years. They start working on the temple and just build the altar, and then they stop for 20 years, and then they complete it in four. So, yeah, I think this is a really appropriate time to throw a party. And here's the question for me and you tonight. Is there any party in your Christian life If there's not, I dare say you may never experience real transformation. No joy equals no change. None. You might say, well, Marsh, I mean, you don't understand. My life is unbearably sad and unbelievably difficult. I don't feel joy, and if I'm going to be real, then I just can't be joyful. I hear you. You might say, Marsh, it's just not my personality. I don't really experience joy. Here you too. Life can be really hard. Personalities mean that we're all wired a bit differently. But I need to hold Jesus out to you. Hebrews chapter 12 says this. Jesus, 
who's the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Let me say that again. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. When did Jesus experience joy? What were the circumstances of his joy? Was it the wedding feast where he turned water to wine? Is that what's in view here? Was it after the feeding of the 5,000? Is that what's in view here? Is that when he had joy? Was it after he healed Lazarus? Is that when he had joy? Is that what's in view in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2? No, no, no. It's the cross. Joy is what motivated Jesus to endure the terror of terrors. And when I say terror of terrors, I'm not talking about the fact that all of Jesus' friends abandoned him. I'm not talking about the fact that he was found guilty by a corrupt judicial process. I'm not talking about the excruciating physical pain that he endured. What I'm talking about is the fact that he bore the wrath of God for sins that he didn't commit. And he did it with joy. Really? Joy? Really? He he did all of this because he loves you. And when this news hits the deepest parts of your soul, it's going to cause joy to spring forth. It's going to cause joy to spring forth no matter your disposition, no matter your personality, no matter the circumstances of your life. Joy will come forth. See, God's committed to your growth. He's not going to quit speaking his word to you. He's going to be faithful to you on your very slow journey towards sanctification. He's going to leverage pagan kings. He's going to leverage bears to push you forward. And he's going to give you occasions to sing heartfelt praise. Did you catch the promise that Benjamin read to us earlier? I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What a promise. So no matter how discouraged, how stuck, how cynical you are about your personal transformation or the transformation of our church or the transformation of our world, God gave us that promise. He never starts a job that he doesn't finish. So, brother and sister, he is at work in you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, would you give us hope? Would you help us to sing? Even in the midst of our pain, we know we can sing because you're faithful to us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.